So this week on Three Sides of the Coin, we are joined by Stephen Roth, who has this book out, uh, Take It Off, which is totally cool. It's all about the unmasked, uh, non-makeup years of Kiss. So stay tuned. Listen, it's going to be awesome. But but he works at the company. It's not his book. But Lisa didn't know that because she forgot or couldn't figure out that she couldn't plug in her computer. Shut up. <laughs> been a rough day yeah, for Lisa. Leave me alone. This is Three Sides of the Coin, talking all things KISS. I want to rock and roll all night. You're listening to Three Sides of the Coin. Want to get your official Three Sides of the Coin logo and shocker tee? Now you can. We ship worldwide. Get yours online at shop.threesidesofthecoin.com. thing is too short oh Jesus. brian how did you really deal fit. with this lisa didn't plug in her speakers yeah this cable remember when i had this up on here uh-huh. it'll i don't have it plugged in by the way god lisa it's the blonde hair good lord brian thank you <laughs> i mean that's as dingy as it gets Are we going to stare and look at... What are you doing? Paneling all... Hello? Hello? Okay, can we hear you now? Yes, we can. Can you hear me? Yes. When it's plugged in, it works a lot better. Awesome. I recorded all of that tech support, so that'll look great on the show. That's our intro. That's the intro this week. I am so sorry. Please forgive me. Yes. I if we top. actually do the show. I am so sorry. That's okay. Lisa, this is Steve. Steve, this is Lisa, and that's Oh, look husband. at that. Even a background for you now. That's what nice. I'm trying. He helped me. Hi. You know, the pink shit behind you, it looks tacky, so. What pink shit? <laughs> oh, yeah. The insulation. That's, I, don't, I can't see you. Where are you? I'm up here in the corner. Hold on. There I am. I'm dragging myself. Oh, I just dragged Michael. So, how have you been, Steve? (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Nice to meet you. This has been a day of technical issues. I feel so bad. I'm so little. Well, thanks for being Mark for today. (laughs) Yeah. That looks weird. I don't know what happened. What is it? Look how nice. He's trying to like adjust my background and get mm-hmm. really lovely. I gotta watch your game. Got any- you know, hey. I'm stalling because I'm really nervous about what's happening in the Yankee game right now. It's like I almost don't want to go back up real quick. But we, appre- but we appreciate you helping her out though. Absolutely. No hey, bef- before you, you cut our- before you leave, send a hummingbird down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he saw it firsthand. All right, you can go now. And take the cat with you. Let me check. I don't know if I have a hummingbird, but I got another bird. <laughs> oh. 
<laughs> He's so funny. I'm just kidding. All right. I'm good. No. I'm really good. I appreciate what about, it. I'm going to put your there. No, you're fine. Everything's right. good. I appreciate your help. Thank you very, very much. Have a good show. Thank you, sweetie. Well, it's Hi. already fabulous. Hi. This is why we are okay, the now I'm most loved number one cool. kiss podcast in the world. You guys work without a net completely, don't you? Oh, God, yes. <laughs> we can't afford a net. <laughs> Just see, see, now you know for sure there's no script. There's no rehearsing. There's no <laughs> It's just a free-for-all. You never know what's going to happen. Exactly. That's what I dig. It's, it's, it's the real world here. Um, all right. So we got Lisa on. We got Steve on. We've got no Mark today because Mark would rather go see Deep Purple than talk to his fans. So just keep Ooh. that in mind, everybody. Which is awesome. <laughs> so we all get to talk today. <laughs> yeah. We don't have to listen to him eat. We don't have to nope. hear about him getting grumpy because he can't eat. He's talk, angry. Listening to him angry. go on and on about his love of poison. And we we talked about the new issue of Rock Candy, which everybody has to get. Um, Tommy, are there any comments you want to read? Yeah, there's a couple. Um, this is regarding our latest show with Kiko, who owns the Kiss Lounge down in Mexico City. Super nice guy. Um, the first one was is a really great one that I hadn't really contemplated. This is uh, David Andriana, and he said, There seems to be a running theme on three sides of Mr. Simmons making kind gestures to young fans, which then sparks hard work and inspiration, which leads to success their adult years. It's easy to take shots at Gene, but as a fan, hearing these types of stories makes me proud to be one. I, I saw that. You know what? That That's a really good observation. Yeah. And, and it's true. I mean, I think all of us can you know, attest to the fact that growing up as fans, you probably didn't realize it as a kid that you were being influenced, but you were. I mean, I, you know, as I look back now, I was clearly influenced by Gene and Paul, but mainly Gene saying, you know, no drugs, no drinking, you know, um, follow your passion, do what you want. Don't listen to people who tell you that you can't do it. You know, you hear that over and over in all their interviews. And, you know, by the time you're 20, 25 years old, that's kind of subliminally made an impression on everybody. Right. Oh, absolutely. Look at how it's affected all of us in our business lives as well and how many other people have gone on to start businesses and, and have successful careers and other things in life just simply because they're fans of the band. Yep. You know, I just think that's really cool. So thank you for that. Uh, and then the other one is um, Michael Catsello said that story about young Kiko and Gene in 77, then telling Gene at the MTV Unplugged all those years later was one of the best things I've ever heard. Magic. It, it was. Yeah. It, it was, was really cool. I, I loved it when he told that to us. And, and, and just so everybody knows, I mean, you know, we, we just alluded to it a little while ago. We don't have show prep. So, like, with Kiko, we had no idea of stories or anything that he could talk about, other than we know he's a huge KISS fan, he owns the KISS Lounge, and he's got an incredible collection. That was it. We had yeah. no idea about the, the, the amazing stories he, he told us. So that's, that's sort of the fun part of doing the show is, you know, all of us on the show discover these things as our guests reveal them. 
Well, and not everybody that we have on is someone that is a rock star. So uh, we appreciate the fact that so many of you tune in every week to check out what we're talking about. Kiko is a great example. And another one is our guest today. You know, many people aren't going to know Steve, but you will by the end of the show. Yep. Um, Wait, I'm not a rock star. (laughs) I play one on TV, right? (laughs) Um, I wanted to share a couple comments as well. These were YouTube comments. First one's from Alexander Walker. This is probably one of the best episodes with an amazing guest. You can feel the passion and excitement in Kiko and the and it just resonated through the speakers. Great episode and hope Kiko can be on again to share more stories. And then um, Roger Bernard, another one out of the park, guys. Awesome. From Kiko's first story till the end, I was so captivated. He experienced the Kiss fan dream at a very early age. I admire his enthusiasm and passion. Wonderful episode. Um, Thanks for those great comments, guys. You know, and I don't know. I just personally love hearing feedback like that, you know, that that people love hearing stories from other KISS fans. How can you not? You're a KISS fan. It's like, come on, guys. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We all got them. All right. So um, let's 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 dig into this show. We've got about an hour this is gonna be a shorter one this week just because of technical difficulties not all on lisa though oh that's good <laughs> mine was a quick fix though mine was like a done well it was quick because you had somebody who knew what he was doing if it was all left up yeah, to you Brian wasn't there well, you know what i did i i brought the monitor and i put it down lower and i think when i did that it on un, it unplugged it out of the back so yeah sure mm-hmm that's my story, and I'm sticking with first, it. First, you know, having done IT support for many years, the first thing you always do, check to see if it's plugged in. Well, I che- I turned it on down there. There's a subwoofer thingy, and I turned it on, and I heard it snap. It was on. It just wasn't. Just whatever. Okay. I can't back. tell you okay. how many times I've had employees who are like, my computer doesn't start. It, it's broken. It's broken. And it turns out they kicked the plug out of the outlet under their desk. They pulled the ethernet cable out of the back you know they they pulled the speaker plug out happens well this all isn't the time. i don't work down here this is brian's like guitar thing so i figured if anyone could why aren't you out on the patio with the hummingbirds because hey, it's cold it's rainy and the hummingbirds are gone oh, i bet you're happy about that oh, yeah, i have both my eyes Nice. Steven, I'm not sure if you understand the whole hummingbird thing or if you are uh, privy. It, ring, it rings a bell. I was attacked outside by hummingbirds. <laughs> yeah. Now let let's let's be clear. She right, thought saying, she was attacked. She thought she was being attacked by a hummingbird. It, it came at me. It came it, at me. It was nearby. No, it right at me. And I went she, like this. Steve, Steve, she acted like Godzilla was chasing her. <laughs> yeah. They do it was, move it, fast. it was like, ah! And they're sporadic. You know, you don't know where they're coming. They're like, do they come right at you? Am I right? See? No, you're not. Oh, I am. I am. Just say I am. No. Oh, yeah, I think I am. <laughs> I think I am. I think I am. All right, <laughs> Tommy, how about giving our special guest a full introduction? Okay, everybody. Please welcome one of my friends, Steve Roth, to the show. 
Steve is a avid music lover, huge Kiss fan, loves Cheap Trick and lots of other bands. Steve has worked for Universal Music Group for a number of years, and he is now working in a book publishing company, ironically, that is putting out a very cool non-makeup Kiss era book that will be hitting the shelves in early November. Yeah. So please welcome Steve. Hey. Hi, Thanks Steve. for joining us, Steve. Hi. I'm, thr- I'm thrilled because I'm huge fans and I've uh, been listening to you guys for a long time. And Tommy, I, I've, Tommy, I've known over the last couple of years, we've got, it dawned on me today, I was thinking today that between all of you guys, we probably have, we probably have a lot of overlapping records in our record collection. I mean, there's probably doubles and triples if we combined them all yep. from listening to you guys and, you know, knowing what you've been doing, Michael, and knowing Tommy these years and just listening to the show and everything. So I'm excited because... This is all the stuff that I, you know, have loved talking about for 30 years plus. Now you can do it on the Internet. So, well, yeah. And, and that was one of the things, too, is, is that you look at what you're doing. And I'm sure it has to do with with Kiss and also your love of music. But let's why don't we go back to the very beginning and start as when you became a Kiss fan. So I'm going to ask you the same question that Michael asks many of our guests. What was the first Kiss record you ever owned? First Kiss record I bought was Lick It Up. Okay. I, I knew I always heard the songs, always knew the music. Um, I was a bit of a late bloomer. So I was class of 85 to kind of put it in perspective. I loved Ace. I was a big comic book fan. You know, I read I've, you know, I've read virtually every kiss book. I'm a huge fan. And I realized I was about five or six t- years too late. And I can remember kids in fifth and sixth grade drawing the pictures of Ace and Gene or the kid in the desk next to me in fifth grade and drawing, you know, and I was so into comics and that was my whole thing. I was into music, but I was r- really all into the pop stuff on the radio. Far, my mom would hit the hit the, le- the button on the left and slid all the way over to five and seven in our, you know, between five and seven in our Chevy Impala station wagon. And then uh, somebody got me uh, Cheap Trick Live at Budokan on a track. And then that's where I learned what loud guitars were. And I can remember, you know, just kind of always hearing the Kiss stuff on the radio. There was another kid on the block who played a lot of music, but I didn't actually act actively buy music with any regularity till I got to high school and I started working. So lick it up, you know, explode. And I went back and just completely went down the kiss hole, if you, if you will, you know, and just, uh, you know, have loved virtually every record since, but my definitive time period, which is, you know, not to segue into a plug, but my time period was where I really started loving them was the was the unmasked years with without the makeup. So I mean, and I I still love that era. I don't I don't necessarily have a favorite era. Let's say I know you know there's obviously those camps, but I mean, if I look back and seen when I've played the most the last like six or seven years for Kiss Wise, it was the last two studio records because I always love to hear what my favorite bands are doing now currently you know i've been playing the old stuff for how many decades you know so um but yeah so that's where it, it all started with lick it up i can remember buying animalize on vinyl and just like absolutely going ballistic over that opening you know paul's opening yodel on uh uh heavens on fire so that's, well, that's so let me ask story. you you got you got you started with lick it up and then animalize and that what was that you were in high school at that time yeah, so I was in high school. So when did Lick It Up come out? 83? 83. So I was, that was probably the end of my, that was the start of my junior year. So 
I'm a, I was a late bloomer to actually buy. I knew so much of the Kiss music because I'd always heard it. You know, I knew I certainly knew the hits. There was kids in school that would play it, but I wasn't really buying music. I was more of such a radio nut. And then whatever, you know, gifts I got at birthday parties. And I can tell you that's got me down the 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 huge uh, <laughs> cheap trick fandom, which has been a huge part of my life. But I got Budokan it for a birthday present. And then the year after I got Dream Police on cassette. So I had an eight track and cassette and I love the Beatles and anything melodic. And that's when I went back and, you know, really discovered more about Kiss was their love for the Beatles and just how melodic so uh, the majority of their music, you know, always has been. So and I think I, that's actually a really good point, too, to bring up since you said it is that's the hard part I think that people have when they don't know this band is when you say what you just said. If I say that, they look at me like, huh? Because I think they all think that um, Kiss is I Love It Loud, but it's not. There's, there's a lot of melody to their music, and to me, that's what it is that makes them so fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny because I Love It Loud was definitely the first video I saw on MTV. I was glued to MTV, you know, all throughout the 80s. Um, but I, I feel kind of sheepish to say it. I mean, I, you know, when everybody else was like really blowing up with Kiss when they were like anywhere between like 10 and 13 years old, when so much fandom, you know, in this age group just fell in love with the band, I was I was a bit behind the curve. So, <laughs> I mean... It's just the way it worked out, you know, uh, but I love, you know, I always I remember hearing I remember hearing uh, uh, back in the New York Groove. So I was growing up on Long Island, New York. So back in the New York Groove was all over the air, airwaves back then. I mean, you know, if it got on pop radio, I heard it and devoured it. I knew who they were. Like I said, I mean, I saw the comic books. I saw, you know, I was just kind of all into that whole realm, but just I didn't necessarily connect at the time with going out and buying that music and and getting into it. So until did, later. How, how much did the the makeup and the and the early image of the band through the seventies influence you? I mean, it sounds like it was more of the music that hooked you as opposed well, to the look of the band. At the time, you know, it's funny because at the, the look, I want, I loved comic books. Um, and I was reminded that I was just at New York Comic Con a couple weeks ago, which was just, uh, you know, you, you, it's so funny because I saw, I, I always try to count the concert shirts there for some reason. And I saw a guy with an asylum shirt on at New York Con, and I loved it. I mean, it's just, you know, there's all, there's, there's always been that crossover for me. I mean, um, or for fans in general. I mean, how many Kiss fans may have started with comics or then later on, you know, there, there is always been that element together because of the makeup. So for me, I mean, I, my favorite, I remember without even knowing who he was at the time was I thought Ace's makeup was absolutely the coolest. It just, it, it reminded me of, of different comic book characters more so than anybody else. And I loved the guitar anyway. I just loved his, his whole uniform, his whole look. Gene, I can remember seeing alive too, as a kid and going, <gasps> and just, that right. <laughs> you know you know that picture and yeah. it's just that was a horror movie to me used to scare me i totally I have did. to hide that album because that picture really did scare me that's that's what totally scared that's what scared me so i mean at you know mid to late 70s there there it was it was so much more pop oriented for me and growing up in long island billy joel was like the soundtrack for like virtually everything sure. <laughs> so i mean even, long island what's that where did you grow up on long island uh take the long island expressway the last two exits riverhead 
Okay. Yeah, or Comac. That's why I asked. I know Comac well. We, used to, I, as I like to affectionately call Riverhead at the time, the gateway to the Hamptons. So oh. <laughs> nice. But so then, where once you started buying, because I grew up on the pop radio as well, and I the first thing I was collecting was all those forty five. So it's really interesting to me that you were obsessed with radio but yet you weren't buying your own music at that time. And again, here's another Kiss fan that could have listened in the 70s, but found them in the 80s. Because we always talk about how you're a fan, whether you found them in 82, 92, 2002. It doesn't matter. It's all relative. Um, did you did you start to look back then and go, oh, God, I wish I would have gotten into this sooner, or you just keep moving forward? You know, a little bit of both. I mean, I, when there was almost that embarrassment when I would later like meet a lot of Kiss fans, and and it was, you know, I'd say about twenty years ago, it was so it was much more delineated. Where it was like, you know, used to there used to be those arguments whether or not you know the Kiss and the makeup era was better than you know than... oh that still happens now oh i oh i know it still happens i spent a lot of time on the bets oh i i <laughs> it's just a little bit more heated now yeah i know exactly but so there was i mean i it was I, I like i said i was kind of sheepish about it i think you know i mean i always loved the heart you know once i got into hard rock and you know really started devouring that stuff my love for pop didn't change at all i mean i back then and just like today i hear magic by pilot i lose my shit i mean i you know my attention span is four and a half minutes if you you know if i'm ever you know the only time i was ever at jam band shows if it was one of the bands i was working i just can't i just don't have that attention span for me it's about the melod it's about the melody it's about the hook um so that's the stuff where i always gravitate to and that's what i you know kind of went back and discovered with kiss i mean you know, with from I mean, Black Diamond's got an amazing hook. I mean, so you know, and from from there on in, and and uh, so it kind of it kind of dovetailed. But I but right when I started buying music and really got influenced by the hard rock stuff, it dovetailed with you know Headbangers Ball, seeing MTV all the time, uh, and then finding Kerrang in my local record store and just going, oh my god, this is because you just start to once people start mentioning their influences in interviews then it's just that opens up for at least for most rock fans i know it opens up a whole new world i mean so when you know when paul stanley's talking about uriah heap or something or steve marriott in humble pie well i'm gonna go check that out it wasn't necessarily on my classic rock station at all i mean i never need to hear free bird again because (laughs) or or you know stairway to heaven again because the rock station my town played that stuff incessantly they, yeah. they ever, if they ever played Kiss, it was rock and roll all night, maybe, you know. So I just was, you know, went straight down into the hard rock realm. But again, always with that element of, you know, big hooks, melody. I mean, I'm a power pop guy. I mean, you know, Me my too. eyes lit up there when you when you mentioned Enough's Enough. So bands like that. I mean, um, and but for, for, for with Kiss, for me, it was always it always had a different energy. No matter the record, it always it always uh, and I, I can quibble and spend hours debating various records production, especially the 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 80s year, you know, the unmasked years and all that. But there was always a different sort of energy that you heard. Um, and back then, I never worried. I never really cared or knew about what, 
you know, who was producing what or just how it sounded to me. It just sounded great to my ears. Now I go back and listen and, and uh, you know, I wonder, you know, I, you wonder what different albums would sound like with producers later on that they worked with. And I'm sure all, you guys have debated all that stuff and I've debated it too. Uh, but it was always, it was always a different sort of energy that Kiss had that I wanted my other favorite bands to have that necessarily didn't have on record. And then once I discovered live, what it was all about, it was like, well, that was a whole other story. Right. Well, and, and to me also, you know, cause you and I, we've talked about this a lot, have so many of the same, um, in music taste and, and 70s AM pop is to me the best era ever, you know. And so for the younger fans that are listening, we're just talking about back then, you know, you didn't even before MTV, you heard all of the new music either from somebody's brother or sister next door or your own, or you listen to AM radio. And there wasn't a def- there wasn't a, def- a defining era per se for different styles because you could have kind of a country-esque song played right next to a pop song, more next to a rock song. It was like, it was all just top 40. Yeah. You know, Casey Kasem. There was no like genre separation back then. They didn't have like AOR and top 40 and, you know, yeah. country. It was all like AM Gold was the best. Like in 1977, 78, I loved AM Gold back then. You know? Oh, God, yeah. Casey Kasem, all that. Well, so Steve, then tell so one of the things that I really wanted to talk about today with you is not only working at Universal, but obviously share some stories that you can share with us. How did you gravitate or end up then working in the music business and tell tell people what it's like to actually work for a record label? Well, sure. Uh, well, before Universal, I actually started working for CBS Records back in 1988. So, and thanks to a cheap trick record, basically, I always knew where CBS Records was, 51 West 57th Street, New York, New York. And I was going to school in, in Connecticut and, and um, through, through high school, I was going to be a graphic artist and was, you know, but was really into music. And I was, high school, everything was music and music. And then, um, you know, learning pretty quickly that I was never going to make it on stage somewhere, which on a side note, one of the greatest quotes I've ever heard from Paul Stanley was when he said, I might, he, he always believed, he said, I might not know how to play that chord, but I know how I'd look if I could. So I, <laughs> that's one of my all time favorite rock that's quotes good. by anyone ever, because I spent hours yielding my trusty air guitar. And so I know how to, I know how all those chords look, but I can't necessarily play them all. But um, so I, just wasn't was absolutely had this overarching thing where i was so into music but i was also interested in how things got on the radio and how things got promoted in stores i was i i mentioned the rock station in my town i used to call my the radio station all the time my town for them to play a song off cheap tricks next position please and the late night dj finally said you do you live nearby or i said yeah so I got on my bike and I rode like about, you know, the two miles at 11 p.m. He let me into the station. He said, listen, he goes, here's how this works. Heaven's Falling is not a single. I know you want it to be. They shipped us the record. I don't know what happened to the record, but here's how this works. And he explained to me the whole bit. And I was like, wait a minute. This is how this works. You mean record labels influence? I, 1983, 84, I didn't know this. Well, yeah. So. I grad- <laughs> so I mean, so I would go to the library and read Billboard magazine every single week, and just was uh, just fascinated by all of this. And I'm in college, and I read about CBS CBS Records College Department. They had the biggest one at the time, and I said, 
I'm going to try this. I cut out of school and drove from New Haven to New York and walked into the building. And I said, I'd like a job. And they said, well, go to personnel. And I had, op- I'm, you know, they sent me like the seventh floor or whatever. And I filled out a job application. It was stuff like, have you operate, ever operated a machine lathe? And I was like, what the hell? You know, some standard thing. And they said, go up to the college department. I walked in there. And it, as it turned out, they had just finally um, posted or let the person know in Connecticut that you know, you got to get a replacement, you're done, you're graduating, whatever. And I interviewed, they sent me up to Boston interview with the then CBS records branch. And that's how I started. So, I mean, it was a combination of things. It was, it was getting airplane college radio and hanging posters in virtually every record store in Connecticut. And, and I graduated in 1990 and they, uh, I, I stayed with CBS. CBS became Sony, which at the time completely bummed me out because I can't tell you how proud I was to say CBS records. Cause my favorite band of all time was on CBS. It was, you know, it was a bit of ego wrapped up in it all, but I loved the people I worked with. It was such, it was a truly special time. And then, um, yeah, just CBS became Sony and I moved out to Minneapolis and the mid nineties, mid nineties. I mean, Michael, I know you're from here. You're from Minnesota. Yep. I mean, and when I moved here in 94, at that time, I had never been in a Walmart, a Target or a Best Buy because they did not exist on the East Coast. They weren't east of the Mississippi then. But I moved here in 94 because CD sales started to explode. All the, I, you know, Sam Goody was based here. This was the hub of best, music. Best, best Buy. And, yeah. And see, a lot of people don't know that, that Minnesota is the hub because Musicland was based here, which was Sam Goody. Target. And then Best Buy and Target. Yeah. that They were really, which is why the Kiss... Why Kiss had that in store in '79 is it had something to do with the with the label. Yeah, at one at one point there was some crazy statistic around the mid to late '90s where one out of every three albums scanned on SoundScan came out came through via a Minnesota-based retailer. So you had Target, you know, was uh, Target, uh, Sam Goody, and Best Buy. Just it was and and know, doing all and, doing huge business. And in in there was um, Lieberman. Which is a huge distributor, distributor, not just of music, but books, video games. Um, They were located right in Bloomington as well. Yeah. So you know they distributed music everywhere. I mean that was that was sort of where the the mom and pops would go shop at Lieberman to to get their music. Yeah. And I mean, so it was really the hub of music retail, but also distribution. So, I mean, I, there was so many whole, there was where, a bunch where, of wholesale, regional chains. Where was the Sony offices in, in Minneapolis? It was uh, in Edina for a real long time. So uh, for at least all the time I was there, it was right off of Highway 100 in Edina. Just, uh, um, it's right, it's like north of 494 and south of 70. It had to be in the little strip of um, office buildings. Polygram had their office there yep, as well. Metro yeah. Boulevard. Yep. 7230, uh, 7230 Metro Boulevard, right near that tall. I used, Rad- to, you, you Radisson. I used to jump in the dumpsters all the time and get promo posters. <laughs> you jump in the dumpsters. I would just call. Time. I would just. I would just call the record label and there and go, hey, can I come by and get something? They always said yes. Well, we had. Yeah, but they, I would two hundred Madonna posters, you know, shit like that. But at any rate, so. Um, once you so when did you, when did you make the switch to Universal? 
Uh, 98. So I, uh, I moved out here in 94 and 97, I got restructured because Sony went from being very hot to, I guess, suddenly cold. And a few months after like my best review in a raise, they, I, they said, come on down to that Radisson. I walked in that morning and to the Radisson, my boss surprised me, was in town and said, uh, well, your, uh, your services aren't warranted any, aren't, aren't needed anymore. So, I mean, I moved out here. I've, and, uh, you know, f- strictly for a job. And uh, a few months later, I found out there was a position with MCA Records. And that's how I ended up with Universal in 98. MC, MCA, so. the Musician Cemetery of America. Or at the time, I remember I, a few years before that, a buddy of mine who worked for Universal, they called it mostly Columbia artists because there was an exec yeah. from Columbia went over to MCA and started signing bands like The Outfield and um, based on a bunch of other ones. So, yeah, we were kind of the also rants for a long time, but I was happy to be a part of, the, you know, a system again. And I went from working from a distributor for a label. So saw a different side of things. And that's really what I always wanted to do. Well, Steve, let me let me. Back up to the transition from CBS to Sony and then even from Sony to Universal. But when CBS was acquired by Sony, can you speak to the internal drama slash politics changes that happen within a record label? I mean, as fans, we always hear the stories from our favorite artists saying, yeah, you know, last year we were the 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 poster child for this label and then this year I walked in and you know the president wouldn't wouldn't meet with me and we saw our posters were no longer on the walls and our A and R rep was fired and the new promo staff didn't like us. Can you speak to sort of how what was that like in or in from inside a record label? And also, what year was this again? This was 1990. Okay. So, um, I mean, I was out in the field, really low level, but I can tell you from the outside, I mean, um, you know, I think what nervousness there was. It was rumored for so long, and there was a lot of press. If if you ever read the read the book Hitmen, oh yeah, uh, I, love that. I love that book. Walter Yetnikoff and all that. I mean, so all that. You know, was a lot of that was playing out in real time, and you know, you would read things and you would hear things. But the way it was back then, um, and it stayed this way with Sony, was you had about twelve or fourteen regional branches, and all right. those branches were like they were like family. They were all really good. You know, if you worked for a branch, your branch manager, your branch sales manager, they really took care of you. I mean, I'm starting out, and I'm looking around and seeing these guys who had all been there for twenty plus years, fifteen plus years. Like, well, there's got to be a reason they're sticking around this long. This must be a great place to work, and you know, there was no, at the time, no, you know, th- nowadays, you know, you read about a merger or a company buying somebody out or anything, and all of a sudden everybody's, you know, get your resume ready because they're going to do cutbacks, right? That always happens. And it, it's funny to look back now because I think Sony paid a billion dollars, which at the time was wildly over, you know, they said they wildly overpriced, you know, they paid way too much for it, but they were buying such an extensive catalog, which they had the foresight to know that that's going to be, you know, when you think of it, Sony made CD players, they had the, the market CD players. So you own the content. Uh, it made perfect sense, especially you had 60 years worth of contact behind content behind that. Uh, but at the time, I mean, there wasn't really, there I never detected any sort of like real sort of nervousness. I was in tight with a lot of older guy, older veterans that had worked there. And it was outside of all new stationery and everything and a lot of new swag we got. It was 
it seemed kind of seamless and, but, and but, there but, weren't cutbacks or anything. Well, and, and, and not, I'm not looking necessarily to how it impacted the, the staff, but, you know, how did it impact the, the artists that you were working with? Did all of a sudden you go from this artist was a big priority a month ago and now it's no longer a priority? Uh, you know, where did this artist come out of the blue? Did you encounter any of that? Not so much because it was it was pretty hands off. It wasn't like there was a suite of people in Japan for Sony or even here for Sony with America making A and R decisions or making marketing decisions. I mean, it was it was pretty much you know very much autonomous. I mean, sure there was a lot of synergy and different things as far as you know artists maybe being involved in different marketing campaigns or how they could try to do some different things. But as far as the day to day, you know how they left Columbia at the time it was mainly Columbia and Epic, and they also had the mandate as well to expand those labels. So underneath Columbia, there was some side labels that started through the early 90s that were part of Columbia, but were independent at the time. And same with Epic. So there was, you know, there may have been some folks who may have fallen through the cracks, but that that was probably more due to just the way that happens at record labels anyway, not so much because of anything Sony did. You you, you don't recall any memos coming down saying, no longer no longer work this band you know it didn't hit my level but i mean a lot of times those it was those might there might not have been a real paper trail on things at the time but sure. it was it was discussed on conference calls you knew when a record was pretty much you know is there going to be another single nope we did we tried three and it's ended well and 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 and, and, and to to that point you know the next follow up question is um you know as fans, again, we're not necessarily privy to all of those business decisions that go on, but fans are just like, why the hell did they not release this as a single? Why didn't they keep doing this? It would have been a massive hit. What what can you share with us from the label side of things? How, how those are just- those decisions made of how much to put into a band, how hard to push a band versus the other band, and what causes the plug to get pulled? Well, I mean, there's a whole number of factors. I mean, um, a lot of times it's just the passion the A&R person might have within a label that somebody is so, you know, jazzed up about something and he's got, he or she has that, you know, uh, has convinced everybody to really make that commitment to spend the money. It really comes down to money. I mean, how much it costs a lot of money to bring a single to radio, let's say, you know, to hire promotion, independent promotion people and do all that stuff. And, and to, and to, you know, do everything it takes to take, take a band to, to market. It could be that it could be something as simple where, it might not be, you know, might the record might have not come out at all, but there could be some radio station somewhere, uh, Lord knows where, or it could be, uh, you know, a field rep or somebody just waving the flag going, I've seen these guys four times. They're selling out every, every time they come through this market, but yet we're not doing anything because sometimes people in New York and L.A. aren't going to necessarily know what's going on uh, everywhere in between. So it, sometimes it's a lot of internal flag waving where you have to, uh, you know, really just shout it out and try to convince people that it's that there's some, really something here and they're worth taking a chance on. Other times it could be a manager that if you want band A, you really got to sign band B and, you re, you know, give give this some full love and then I'll bring this other band that you guys are really hot on over here. So, um 
you know, the middle one that I mentioned is really, at least in my experience, is always really exciting because it was so organic where, I mean, I had way back when there was bands that I was, you know, necessarily what I was one of the flag wavers where, you know, nobody really got it at first or it just wasn't a priority right away. And I like would who? doubt, I could tell you uh, very early on the spin doctors, for instance, they were big on the East coast, but nobody really, that record was out forever before it really took off. And I had them come through my market in new England about three or four times. I mean, there there's lines out the door in Burlington, Vermont on a winter night. Why? I mean, you know, and then they're playing all these places. And finally, you know, after about six or seven months, well, let's try to take this to radio. There's clearly a story here. Let's start this regionally. But because there might have been 20 other bands ahead of them or whatever, you know, some other bands occurring favor or maybe we're heading in a hard rock direction. We don't know. It's just there could be any number of factors, but there's truly a developing story there. I mean, um, you know, Pearl Jam's another one. That record was out for uh, for nearly a year before it really just really blew up. But that word of mouth is so strong. And and even today with the Internet and everything else, I mean, that can speed up word of mouth, but you can't necessarily it's got to be real word of mouth. You can't manufacture that stuff. It's got to be somebody, you know, where it's just going to start where people are talking about the band because they saw them live and they just so fell in love with uh, you know, so so fell in love with this band one way or another, and and it just kind of permeates itself. Was there a record that came out that surprised you that did well that you were never thought would happen? Man, uh, I suppose if I look back, uh, I could find uh, a, a couple of them. I mean, even after my post uh, post uh, Universal and Interscope days, I mean, we had. Uh, you know, when I was doing the indie label thing, there was some different bands. And I'm I'm completely spacing because it was just a ton of different bands. I could probably tell you more about some disappointments where I thought should have been huge. Well, yeah, tell, tell us those. Tell us. Tell us. Uh, I'll give you I'll give you a good one. Um, uh, Chrissy Hind from the Pretenders, one of the records I worked with this indie company I was with for a long time. She uh, fell in love with this younger guy. And they wrote a whole record together in Cuba and they went out and did this. Uh, 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 they put a band together called uh, uh, Chrissy H- JP and the Fairground Boys with Chrissy Hine. And it was a struggle just to get her name on the, and I may have mixed up the wording there somewhere, but it was a struggle to get her name on the record. She didn't, it wasn't a solo project, it was a total collaboration. And the record was really, really good. It was a pretender's record, no, but. It was, they were going to go out on the road with it. They were going to, you know, do all these things and they worked real hard for us, but rate, you know, rock radio, just, well, who's this other guy? Who's, you know, this isn't a pretenders record. And when I first heard it, I thought this, there's some fun stuff here. This, I mean, if you like Chrissy Hine, you should like this, right? If you were playing this back then, or, you know, even the most recent pretender records, or I think she had a solo record before that, it would have made perfect sense, right? Just didn't, See, just didn't go. Back. Well, and that goes back to the whole Kiss thing about using the original four faces. Yeah. People don't know what they like. They like what they know. So if it doesn't have the pretender's name on it, it's going to be very hard to sell. Yeah. So, and I love that saying you had there, too, because it's 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 uh, obviously there's steps to you have to you have to get to before, you know, so people 
<laughs> so people like what they know, right? So they know they discover something and one way or another, they're going to hopefully end up liking it. Right. I mean, but there, you know, sometimes there's blinders are on and you don't, and you're not seeing anything else and, or you or the expectations are from one thing because of the history. And if it doesn't measure up to the expectations, you're going to turn a, I was going to say a blind eye, but a deaf ear to it, I guess. So, yeah. and that's obviously always frustrating. As, well, as, yeah. as, as a as a music fan, um, how challenging was it working at, at these labels to go out and promote something that you as a fan just doesn't work for you? You're not a fan. It didn't connect with you, but yet you've got to get on the phone. You've got to go to the meetings and be that last mile cheerleader to say, I need you to buy this. I need you to support this. I need you to do an in-store. But, at, you know, you come back to the office and you're like, I wouldn't spend my own money on this. Yeah, I mean, taste is a relative thing. It never got in the way of me. Uh, it never got in the way of me trying to do the best I could because I always want to be the best at something I did. And and so much of it at the time, especially in the physical world, where it was numbers based. I mean, I had a quota or at least or at least something to come close to it. Or a lot of it was just trying to prove somebody wrong. So an account said, you know, what? we're not going to sell three thousand copies. Of that and I'm like, you're going to sell three, and here's why. Um, you know. I've just reminded today in the Kiss related thing, last company I worked for, we did the Ace Freely Anomaly record, which I just got today from a friend of ours at Entertainment One, the the 10-year vinyl reissue. And there was a couple folks that said, there's no way this you're, this is going to do 17 or 18,000 first week. And I said, he hasn't had a record in ages. It's going to do this. This is why. A couple accounts passed on it and they regret it. And, and it's... Uh, you know, you get those victories like that, and it, and that is the sort of thing where, regardless of the, of the genre of the music, you're when you can prove somebody right or prove somebody wrong, it's 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 really it's extremely fulfilling job wise, but also just as a fan of music and wanting to do the best you can for the company. So, um, I mean, the only thing. You know, whether it was a rap artist or whoever it was, I mean, you want to do the best job you possibly could. A lot of the stuff I may not have understand. Probably the toughest thing I ever had to sell back way back when was classical and jazz because it was just so completely over my head. And there was just no way I was ever going to get up to speed and learn that stuff. But, right. um, you know, when you had a story to sell, there's a single, there's a tour, there's, uh, you know, there's video, there's airplay, there's all these things. And it's you have this data and you can put it all together and say here's why this this can happen um you know you have all those tools at your disposal it's it can be it was a really fun thing to do conversely if you didn't have everything it was extremely frustrating because you were still had you still had it was still coming out on this date and the first single failed and for because this had to ship in this business plan or whatever it was it's coming out now when it's coming out and you know, you couldn't bullshit anybody about that either. Yeah, because... it, it, was, was it challenging to see business decisions get in the way of doing the right thing to help something succeed? Meaning, you know, oh, it's not going to hit its quota. Oh, we're not going to, you know, the, the, the end of the quarter numbers aren't going to be strong for this release. And you're like, yeah, but that's because you didn't do A, B, C, and D. And therefore, next quarter... It just disappears and you're off to the next project. Is that frustrating? 
Yeah, it was real. It was really frustrating. I mean, one thing I always would tell myself was to try to take the emotion out of it. I mean, there were bands that I absolutely loved, and I learned really early on that you know some of them you might become really good friends with, and even no matter how much you love the music, you just had to take that emotion out. Because I used to joke around. I said, I said some one way or another is going to go bad. It might be the first album might be the fourth album but when you're dealing with major labels or labels in general it's it's gonna somehow it's gonna end right i mean and usually not necessarily on a good note right. and and a lot of times you're the villain unfortunately or you or you were part you were the face of that bad news somebody got from a label executive and and it could be really heartbreaking sometimes at the same time i would try to separate and that go i gotta make you know I got a living to earn here. I got to do the best job I can. And you can only rock the boat so much. And also you would know, you would, you kind of would know internally at certain levels of my career, where it's just like, listen, we spent a hundred thousand dollars on this. We can go broke. We spend more money. We're a small company, whatever it might be. We're still paying off the production and the different things that got the records to the market in the first place. It's, you know, how much more can you invest before you can just know that that ship is not going to write itself. Well, and, and I'd like to go back to Anomaly, because here's Ace's first release in quite some time, and you're working it. Where was the hesitation on the parts of some people? Um, it was more some of the hesitation at retail, because he hadn't had an album since, what was it, Trouble Walking, maybe, if I remember correctly. He was gone for so long, a lot of fans knew that. I mean, I, I saw him live in the early 90s and I, in New York, and I was so disappointed. I'm like, I thought he was going to fall off the stage. I mean, you just, you know, it was, he had his issues. He had his problems that kept him from recording. And, and, uh, but at that time when Anomaly came out, you know, your, your post the reunion tour, he is, you know, he's at a level where that he hadn't been the previous, you know, 15 years or so, whatever. And it was just, he was everybody's favorite for the most part. You know, the re retailers you talk, they love Kiss. Everybody everybody loved Ace. I mean, really, if you took a poll, you guys have probably done this, who would win the popularity contest out of Kiss members, right? I mean, Ace is, everybody loves Ace, and how could you not, right? So, I mean, there was more hesitation, I think, from some of the retailers who were looking at numbers. I mean, if I remember correctly, and not to slag anybody, Target, oh. passed, Target passed on it. And that was a big mistake. And Best Buy ate their lunch for it, you know, and they had to reorder very quickly. And we were very happy, <laughs> you know, and the independent stores did okay. fantastic. And so, wait a second. so stop right there. Yes. And go back and go into a little bit more detail about, OK, so Target passes, Best Buy passes. No, Best Buy did Best buy. Buy, buy. OK, yeah. so Target when did they realize they had made a mistake by passing on it and how what happens then they uh realized about tuesday afternoon uh when they caught wind of uh by tuesday or at least on wednesday when they caught wind of what our first week projections were going to be uh because at the time you used to be able to say okay if, uh first day sales especially at those big accounts were could roughly be about half to 60 percent of what you were going to sell first week so if you sold four thousand copies first day out of the box like that chain wide you were probably going to do maybe seven thousand plus for the week and then you can just extrapolate and say well all these folks are doing this and we're going to hit this number and it was my job to let folks know what was going on in the marketplace right. and at that point the horse is out of the barn for they're not going to go back unless something was just this crazy massive pop hit at the time they weren't going to go back on a rock number and they would just all right well unfortunately we missed it 
And if you brought something to them six, eight months later that could be comparative and they were hedging on it, you can go back and go, listen, this is what you missed last time. This is what this is going to do. There's a comparative artist. Um, So, yeah, I mean, you know, other folks made up that business there. In particular, you know, I remember the independents did really well. And that's because Ace worked really hard for us. And we did a couple huge in-stores. And um, uh, he was fantastic to work with. And, of course, the record was was great. I mean, we all sat around. Uh, you know, you, I'm sure you guys know Matt Larson. He was with us yeah. back back then. And um, uh, just one of my all-time favorite people. And we Thanks were just sitting the show. Yeah, we were just sitting around, you know, Ace. I remember walked out to go to the bathroom. And we're just like, can you? you know i mean it was like we're fans first you know i mean it was just like are you kidding me this i mean we so all them into the toilet so that's good no we we had we kept some semblance of class there you know but it was a really special time when you get a chance to work work and or not even work but just to meet your heroes i mean it's listen if you're if you're really into sports and you're working for an nba team and somebody that you love gets traded you know that veneer's gonna come down for a minute you're gonna be like are you kidding me i just met you know, whoever it might be. I mean, it's, it's, you, you know, you gotta be dead inside not to have a thrill from that stuff, you know, whether you're st- ultimately we're fans, we're doing this because we, we love right. the music and the artist so much. Yeah. What did, did you encounter um, any pushback from, from retailers going, or not, not necessarily saying anything, but you could tell they just never had a love for kiss. They didn't think kiss was, that important that big that you know the the ace fraley ex-guitarist of kiss meant nothing to them because of past history anything like that it wasn't so much the band so much it was whether it was how in particular ace's case was how long you know he had been gone there was nothing you know out the reunion tour obviously was a big deal of course and you know certainly raised his you know profile hugely but these guys would go back and they would just say, well, you know, he hasn't had a solo record. What does this mean outside of Kiss? There was nothing to really compare it to. So if, let's say if he, if he had a record that came out right on the heels of that, let's say, and we could say, well, look, it just, you know, it did X amount. So, you know, you've got some history there. Nobody really had history or there was no real history on what Ace had sold previously because it had been so long. And, you know, it was a fool's errand to say, well, if Kiss sold this from, you know, out of out on Psycho Circus or or these uh, compilation records, Ace should mean this. There was no real formula for that. There couldn't be because, I mean, it was just that's apples and oranges. I mean, yeah. you got a massive entity with a humongous push behind it and a huge reunion versus a you know a singular solo artist that had been away for how many years and and uh, you know there was really no point in comparison uh, did, comparing that did you did you have anybody who on the other side wanted or asked you know can't we play the kiss card more can't you know why why can't we be why can't we have makeup on the album that would help sell it why can't we plaster the kiss logo around it because i mean as we all know there's 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 legal issues that ace can't put makeup on ace can't put the kiss logo you know, on a on a on a sticker that says "former member Kiss big logo," you know, can't do that. But were there retailers who were like, you know, if you could do that, it would help us. 
Not, not at the time. I mean, everybody knew that there was so many limitations within back then. I mean, what are we talking? Was it 2010 about, right? I mean, by that point, I mean, everybody knew how, you know, if you did anything that remotely looked like it, you were going to get a cease and desist from Gene or something, right? So, I mean, if any retailers did it on their own, that was their That, that was, was their on thing. them. Yeah, but we knew we couldn't do any of that in any of the packaging or anything that anything like that. But at that point, did we really need to? I mean, if you know, if you are doing anything with rock radio or working for a retailer, and you don't know any, you don't know Ace Freely's Kiss connection, you might as well just quit. You know, sure. I mean, it's, it goes without saying. So, what was it like then working with him? He was he was awesome. It was uh, uh, he he was he was a lot of fun to work with. Um, uh, there was Ace Freely standard time often, uh, <laughs> which just, there was sure. rock star time. Uh, you, it, it, it <laughs> we did an in-store, um, we did two big ones and I'm going to space on the names and I feel horrible about, but there was a, uh, at least you might know there's a, um, I've got, I can remember the guy's name, but there was a big store on Long Island. We did one, we did a, a signing, another one in New Jersey, two heavy duty, you know, real rock leaning retail stores. Ace was late to both of them. Uh, and you, it was a spinal tap moment with me trying to say, I'm telling you, he's coming in an hour. He's on his way. Steve, you said that two and a half hours ago. There's 500 people out the strip mall here, uh, you know, and you know, was, yeah, I was sweating, you know, but at the same time when he came in, he came and apologized and to me and he was a nice guy and he was just like, hey, listen, I want you to do me a favor. Take my cell phone number if you ever need anything. And I'm doing a bad kids impersonation, you know, Ace Freely impersonation. But I'm like, son of a bitch, my hero wrote down his phone number on a post-it note, you know? I mean, I was so scared I was going to butt dial him. I ended up deleting him out of my contacts a couple of years later, you know? So, I mean, that was a, <laughs> you know, I got a, I got a few big thrills uh, <laughs> artist-wise with some of my all-time favorite artists. And that that was definitely one of them. I mean, just we, you know, took him a serious satellite radio and he was just, you know, they're your heroes. Right. And it was just it was, you know, there was no there was no drinking or drug problems. He was he was he was, uh, you know, as professional as he could be, given the fact that, you know, he may have always been chronically late. You know, so yeah. but he showed up and he did the job and he signed for hours and uh, everybody was happy. You know, it. It was, it was, it was a hell of a lot of fun. It was, it was days I, I, I do miss. Oh, I bet. Well, and and he sounded like he was very committed to the to the process too. Yeah, he was. I mean, he he uh, he was really. Um, he, he was super, you know, he was confident, but I think at the time also, I mean, I'm not trying to read minds here, but I think he was a little bit nervous as well because it had been a while. And, yeah. you know, let's face it with Ace uh, there. And uh, this is I'm sure a great debate, but, you know, with Ace, there's always uh, kind of uh, fostered because of, you know, all the years of the backbiting of what you know, people, what the reality might be with Ace, as opposed to, uh, you know, what people think might happen or, you know, he's going to be late. He's going to, you know, this is back in 2010. And, you know, after he left the band or got fired, whatever the story might be. But, you know, there was, I, I think that uh, on his part, you know, you're battling against that, right? So you got it. You're going right. to, I think ultimately you want to prove people wrong. And I think he's, 
he's proved tons of people wrong. I mean, he's been super prolific. This has been the most prolific time of his career. All yeah. his all his albums sell. His labels have done a great job with it for him. And yeah, you know, Ken and Ewan, those guys are Ken oh, worked so hard over Ewan. Yeah, I mean, Ken was my boss for a minute. We did a Bruce Kulick record, so he's one of my all-time favorite people. Hi, Ken. <laughs> but uh, you know, so I mean, I, he knew how passionate we all were. I mean, we, you know. He, I, I know he knew that and and was real appreciative of it. So I mean, uh, like it was it was a no brainer. How, how, how important is it for artists to be super cooperative with anything the label needs? Meaning, you know, I mean that it, I get the impression that from the side of Kiss, they've always been, you know, they've always shaken shake hands, take pictures, go meet the retailers, go meet the radio stations. Even when they were international superstars, they still did it because they understood those are the people that have the ability to make or break. Um, how important is that? I mean, and, and was it frustrating when you ran into artists who were just like, no, I don't want to do an in-store. No, I can't, I can't go meet the buyers. Yeah, I mean it's super important, uh, and it's as important on that first record when you're when you're new, and uh, it's it's important on the eleventh record or whatever it might be because, uh, you know, it's about fostering that goodwill. I think, and just these are the people who are working hard for you. And granted, there's not much retail anymore, but there's still people at all these digital providers. There's still, you know, you have a management team, you have a marketing team behind you, you've got people that you you know that. But for them, you would just have your stuff on SoundCloud or whatever it might be, right? Or just be sitting out there. I mean, you, uh, you know, there's people who are willing to do an awful lot for you. And for the most part, a lot of them, for the most part, everybody tend to get that, especially especially the younger up and coming artists. They were always so appreciative. You know, there's a, there's that rarefied air of like a Mariah Carey or somebody who you know probably has no idea what her team might be doing for her, and it's filtered through a couple layers of management, let's say, or some other superstar like that. But um, you know, a lot of them were were always really hands on, no matter the genre, and were, and were real appreciative. And they would go out and they would do you know they would go out and do things because they knew it was in their best interest, and they also knew that. And I think, you know, you saw this evolution for the last 20, 30 years where staying power is really, really hard. I yeah. mean, it's, it's, it's almost as funny as it sounds. It's almost easier to get to the top than, than it is, it is to stay, to there. stay, stay there. at the top. Absolutely. I mean, you know, taste change, um, attention spans at, at radio and everywhere else is super short. You know, you were you were anybody who's got a staying power, especially a younger artist that can that can stay and evolve a bit. That takes a hell of a lot of work. And it's not just them doing it. I mean, it's it's everybody combined, but it's also them coming out there and not doing the diva thing and getting out there and working their music and helping to get it to the masses and to spread that message out there. Steven record store in Long Island slip disc. It was, uh, it was, you know, it it wasn't, I don't think it was slip disc. It was, I really, I think I'm getting dementia. That's what I think it is. But, uh, um, what's that? It might've been in Iowa. No, it was definitely not. It was in New Jersey. It was in, it was one in New Jersey, one in New York. Um, Man, I'm just totally spaced on it. It's gonna, as soon as we get done, I'm just—it's going to hit me. And somebody, uh, somebody will comment that they were there. Yeah, was... so that's part of your homework. If you were at one of those, let us know which one it was. <laughs> talk, talk a little bit about about your um, 
involvement with the Bruce record? Um, well, we uh, the B, that was the BK3 record, and uh, that was kind of about a year before I left that one company. And I mean, I was doing sales and marketing and, and kind of helping out. It was kind of an all hands on deck thing and uh, was helping out. Uh, somewhat with the product management, but really about getting, you know, my whole job was sales and marketing. So it was really about making sure this got out to retail in the right way, making sure everybody knew what was going on out there, working on any promotions. Um, I wasn't there because I was in Minneapolis, but I remember uh, we did a really cool event where he did a live show in LA. And I, if I remember Nick Simmons, because Nick Simmons sings on a track on that, and he came out and did something. And, and uh, I remember talking to Bruce on the, on the phone a couple times and just, he was always willing to work and I don't think there's anybody alive that met, has met Bruce that doesn't say he's one of the nicest all time greatest people. And yeah. I can, I can be one of those millions of people who can attest to that. And, Just- yeah. And he's so organized. And, and my experience when we did that um, meet and greet interview, yeah. this is that he, we got the, I got him there really early. He liked to be organized. He wanted to meet everybody that was working the event so he understood who did what he's very very organized i would think that he would be very easy to work with super easy and i mean he was he was so passionate about his music as you would expect but i mean that you know he had what the audio dog records out before that i think Mm -hmm. one or two of them and he did the union stuff which didn't really hit in a big way which is a damn crime but that's a whole other conversation but uh, uh so i mean he uh was was you know super gung ho as you would expect, but but I was really really proud of that record and as well he should be. Yeah. Oh yeah. Steve, do you, do you have any, you know, kind of going back to you know the the Spinal Tap moment where if if you guys haven't seen it, you got to go watch the movie Spinal Tap and and pay attention to the Spinal Tap in store where Artie, the, Fufkin. Artie Fufkin, who is the basically the rep, has a job like what you had. Kick my um, ass. <laughs> kick, kick my ass. You know, the band is sitting there and there's nobody at the in-store. So I guess two-parter question. Do you ever recall having one of those spinal tap moments where it's like nobody showed up? And then on the other side, do you remember moments where the band would be like, yeah, we're in the middle of Iowa and this record store doesn't have our record in stock. What are you doing? What's your job? You're, I'm calling the press, you know, do you have memories of those types of things happening? Oh yeah. Yeah. I can, I can remember sweating out a good number of one where they're just, you know, people were coming, arriving late. Uh, there was a couple bands on the East coast, um, uh, that, uh, you know, we're fortunately it was a small indie store and a dozen people looked like it filled the store you know? <laughs> and expectations were low because they were developing artists. And they were just happy. Uh, but, uh, you know, anybody who's been in the record business since Spinal Tap came out has used some. It, we used to say we don't want to listen. If we're going to do this, we can't have a Spinal Tap moment. And you knew exactly what that meant. That you just exactly you knew what that meant. Um and uh, although that could lead any moments, I mean, I was praying someday I would hear a com- over here a conversation where, you know, somebody was trying to, you know, explain that a record cover was, you know, sexist, not sexy. Right. But I, you know, it was, you know, that we had to change covers over the years for Walmart and stuff. But I unfortunately didn't get that close to that kind of conversation. But um, there was uh, 
you know, there was a lot of those that didn't, that didn't happen. And I could tell you, I've gotten, I had gotten phone calls or phone calls relayed to me from band, uh, from band members, but also band members, family that they walked into a store. So, uh, Oh, oh I didn't even think of that. Yeah. I got a, uh, one, I, one back when I was with MCA, uh, the bass player from Semisonic, uh, his mom or aunt walked into a store somewhere in the Twin Cities and couldn't find the album, and she wasn't happy about that. <laughs> you know, well, was so, she going to buy it? Probably not. Probably, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, but she was out there looking. You know, um, and also you'll get the fear of God sent into you when you get a phone call when you're at the state fair on a Saturday morning, and you get at uh, Saturday morning and the Best Buy on Pico Boulevard in Santa Monica just opened and Jimmy Ivey walked in and didn't find the Gwen Stefani CD, which there was 120 in the back. But at that morning, they were still putting them out. I mean, I, if I could just do this, my life would be so much easier if I could pull an I Dream a Genie yeah. sort of thing. But, you know, that was the last thing you wanted to have happen on the, always. But but if Jimmy, why wouldn't Jimmy just ask them, do you have the new Gwen Stefani record and why is it not out? Then the problem would have been solved right then and there. He he probably did. Uh, but his first call is to rattle somebody else's cage, I guess. And, yeah. yeah, well, and then, I, I would bet he they probably told him oh, it's in the back and we just haven't gotten them out yet. We're working on it. He's probably thinking your job is to make sure. That's the first album that gets put out in the morning, not the last album that gets put out. We yeah. don't care about the other labels who have releases. We only care about Gwen Stefani, and that's your job. We always used to have a saying that the last 50 feet was the hardest. So getting something out of the back room or off the truck and out to the sales floor, for goodness sakes, especially at like uh, the Walmarts of the world that you know, how to wait till a rep would come in very often. Those la the last 50 feet, you know, you'd have somebody pulled up on a computer. It's like store 323. They've got 78 of them. Well, they're not on the goddamn floor. They're not on the wall. They're not on the end cap. We'll get calls. I mean, I've, I used to call stores all the time and have to, you know, find somebody to find somebody. Listen, well, I, I don't know if I just keep looking up and just walk sure, somebody yeah. through getting it out to that sales floor. I mean, they uh, retail wanted the same thing that we all want. They wanted to sell, uh, sell as many as they could, but sometimes different things would get in the way. Did you, did you, did you run into my job? I worked at um, Camelot music. I was assistant store manager from 92 until like 95 man I, it's like it's like as i'm listening to this it's like reliving this you know <laughs> they have the new album out and you're and you're still trying to hurry up and get it out and you know people call them are you sure they wanted pictures to see where it was oh god and, yeah well yeah. And, and then of course you've got the crazy obsessive fans who are there as soon as the door unlocks in the yeah. morning going how come i can't get, buy we it we never even got the um you know the uh anti-theft thing Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Where you, it was like big plastic. You had to stick to the I can't even count the number of times I went to buy a new release in the 70s and 80s on release day, and they hadn't even unpacked the box yet. Well, I, I, yeah. I can't tell you how many times they've also say, uh, I, I don't, you know, whoever it was, I don't know, is that album out yet? And, and you're like, yes. It's released today. That's why I'm and, standing and, in you front know, of you. And, and you know, I might have called the local office who said, yes, that store is going to have X amount in stock. And I'm telling them this. And they're <laughs> like, no. And I'm like, 
go look in the back. Go walk back there and find that box. Can you open the box and just bring one out for me to purchase? The funny right. part about being a fan and being that person waiting at the door or asking where it is and it's in the back, and then actually when you work in the store, you're extremely sensitive and proactive because you've been in that person's shoes. So I was always the one to make sure they were out. I always knew what the new releases were because I was that person going, where is it? Where is it? You know, especially for on Kiss Day. Do, do, you, yeah. do, you, do you also have stories, memories of um, the retailer who, for whatever reason, accidentally or intentionally puts it on sale early? It shows up, you know, a day early, a week early because they think they're going to get a jump on a very highly demand album or they just weren't paying attention. Yeah, yeah, I'll tell you. Increasingly, though, that happened less and less. I mean, maybe to, uh, you know, maybe since I've had been out of the record industry, as CDs, as people were trying to get every last bit of sale, you know, sales they could. I mean, store days. Before Scantron, before Scantron, there was no tracking, right? Yeah, and and so, but a lot of times, especially with those big companies. Um, you know, it could go. It could go two ways. Where I mean, these folks had the fear of God put them anyway, and they were, and they just, you know, you open the box, and it said, "Do not put out until Tuesday this this particular day," and the distributors got so good at drop shipping things, and so you know, it was nearly just in time delivery. So things, unless it was a, a rare mistake, something wouldn't show up. Uh, you know, something wouldn't show up a, a you know a week or a month early like that. I mean, it was it was that that was kind of that was kind of a rare case. And if it was, you know, they would pull it right away. For the most part, people wanted to do the right thing because they didn't. It, it was almost self policing. Well, it's like if I start doing this, my customers going to start doing this, and if I mean my competitors going to start doing this, and if I don't get one, you know what I mean? It could it could just turn into a really ugly thing. Uh, and just keep perpetuating. So, for the most part, folks tended to, at least from what I saw, a lot of times it was it was pretty self policing, and uh, occasionally there was a massive rap record that people wouldn't wait, and then they you know, start selling it on Mondays or something. And then once that happened, it was like, all right, well, everybody's got to, you know, it was like can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. That damn right. burst, and there you go. So, you well, know, like, go ahead. I was just saying, it seems like it's happened a little bit with the record store day because people are putting the stuff up online before they even own it. And I'm not speaking of the record stores themselves, but just customers. Yeah, yeah. And I know they'd work really hard on trying to police that stuff. Yeah. Uh, you know, Michael and those guys there. I mean, I know um, – uh, you know, that, as that thing just keeps getting bigger and bigger, I just, I just think people are taking, you know, maybe taking screenshots of stuff and or they're finding yes, a way to do it, and they're posting it up. So the the moment, the moment they hopefully will get any stock, they can just sell it on eBay or whatever they're doing with it. So, I mean, there's no matter what, there's always going to be kind of that scavenger mentality where some, you know, everybody's yeah. somebody wants to make a buck somewhere. Yep. Can 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 you talk to the trend in this? especially started with the targets and the best buys where they wanted a special edition of the album that nobody else had meaning we want target wants three extra songs wants a little mini ep included wants a different cover you know talk to that how that developed and was it did you was it a challenge to do that how how, oh, how yeah. much more work did it put on you guys now you're managing five different versions of the same release and they got to make damn sure this one only goes to target 
Oh yeah. Yeah. No, I did a lot of those, uh, um, very early on too. And, and, uh, it got people pissed at you. It got other competitors mad at you, but, um, you know, you were at one point it was about hopefully growing market share, but at some point it got, it got so out of hand where it was just, you're still going to sell probably that 15,000 anyway, or whatever that number might be, but you're not going to sell more than that. Instead that the folks with, with that extra piece are going to take, are going to, you know, sell 70% of that number. And it's just going to piss the customers off at these other places or drive business away from these other places. So it didn't, it, it was, it was always a pain in the ass. It was for the most part, it was fun to do. You got some cool collectibles. It could be fun. It was, it was some cachet to it. Uh, but it got, it rapidly got out of hand and um, like, you know, just about anything else, you know, major labels in the record industry would often do. It, you know, it was a good idea that got, you know, that got drove into the ground. That they and, that they milked every dollar uh, out of yeah. until it was just the idea was destroyed. Yeah, I mean, as a fan, I ha- I've I've got a distinct memory of years ago, um, a ZZ Top album, and it's like, man, I want the ZZ Top album. So the they released a four song EP which I bought and then they released the full album three months later, which contained those four songs that I'd already bought. And, but damn, I need to get the rest of the song. So I'm buying it again. Oh, and then if you head over to Best Buy and buy the CD over there, you'll get the 10 songs plus two extra songs. And now I'm like, you're asking me the fan to basically buy this same release five times so I can get every version of the song, you're penalizing me. You're hurting me, the fan. You know, at some point, enough's enough. Right. I mean, yeah, but leading up to that was what the label and what the artist was getting for that exclusive, right? So, uh, you know, the account would commit to some ridiculous number of units, right? That looks great on the book. So instead of ten thousand, they might buy thirty thousand because they're getting that special, uh, uh, special EP with it. That special thing with it. Uh, they're also getting placement on that end cap that might co- might have cost you know thousands and thousands of dollars a week, but they're getting that for free. Uh, you know, for the first four weeks, let's say they're getting into a circular or radio advertising or in store. So I mean, there was the labels weren't doing it just because they were wanted to piss people off or because they wanted to, you know, get oh, somebody no, you're, a favorite. You're right. it, you it, got it, something for it. It, it, it. They, they increased, they increased the units moved is basically what they did. But yeah. in, in doing so, the fans, you know, the fan being the last mile of that transaction ends up having to buy over and over and over. Oh, and now go to iTunes and you'll get the live track and, the iTunes download, and it's like, how many times do I need to buy the same album? Yeah, ab- absolutely. It just ended up pissing people off, and and I mean, I'm a fan first, and I know it would piss me off. It pissed me off. I mean, you know, later on, years later, I was just, I'm not going to buy it. So I'm just going to find it on YouTube or find it somewhere else. I'll find it one way or another because I already got it. You know, I mean, just well, they did that with the Kissology. You know, there were special bonus discs at different marketers, different retails. Yeah. So. I mean, it always like nowadays you see this a lot where uh, a band might I, I'm trying to think of who did this recently, but a band, a rock band might put, you know, their record. It's a year later. They want to jumpstart the record again. So they're going to add like a four song. They're going to add some, it might be to everybody, all retail, digitally or whatever. Sure. And it might. And it, but now it's this album plus these four live songs, or these four. 
Well, just, you know, release that separately, man. I'll buy the EP. Well, just, you know, well, whatever I mean, that might listen, be. Kiss did that with Psycho Circus. Yeah. You know, the Psycho Circus album came out first, and then a few months later, there was the bonus that you could get of a live EP that was recorded that now you, okay, I'm going to go out and buy the CD all over yeah. again so I can get the live EP. Yeah, I mean, it, it, if it's good enough to add to an album that's a year old, it should be good enough to stand alone because those fans are going to buy it anyway. I mean, you don't have to you, you don't have to get every single dollar that falls off the table, right? I mean, you but do, do, you, do you think you part of that? that. Do, do you What's think, that? You could get fired for, me, for saying that. <laughs> do, do, Steve, do you think a lot of that is driven by, especially, you know, coming the, the late 90s and onward, you know, unit sales became harder and harder, especially because Napster is is now born and, and MP3s are taking over and people are just buying a single track, not an album, that, you know, in order for the label to move units, we want you to buy the same album over again so we get another unit moved, another sale, oh. an, you know, moves it closer to a gold album status. Yeah, move and just and more billing. I mean, uh, you know, you were uh, everybody saw that decline in you know the physical product, which was, you know, labels had a huge hand of it's a self fulfilling prophecy right there. That's I mean, <laughs> that's a good part, you know, reason why it's not just digital that kind of has helped kill physical, but that's that's a whole other conversation. But um, it was it was about. Um, you know, you would read things. Well, it's helping you know to stave off the decline of physical retail. Mm, yes or no, but let's not be so altruistic. This is what it's for because it's going to mean ex you know, if right. we can get people to buy something different, buy something more expensive. That's that's more money. You know, that's more money. It, it's it's a short term. It was always about that quarter, that quarter, like any other business or most big businesses. Sure, sure. If we can fit it in, you know, a lot of times there's so many decisions made where, uh, you know, you would look at the calendar and it would, and, and you knew you saw something coming on the release schedule. Why is that coming out now? Well, the quarter ends on the 31st. We got to hit, get, you know, get that in, you know, it's, it's about those profits booked. Yeah. But if they just wait another month or two, but that's a different fiscal quarter, the start of a different fiscal year. And you're a slave to that business plan so often, that, especially that, that, if you're a publicly traded company. That that's that's what happens when accountants and MBAs and business people start running the business as opposed to music music fans. Exactly. All they all they all they care about is what are the Wall Street numbers going to be next quarter? Do we do we get our bonuses? Um, if if moving that release up or back helps that, that's what happens. Yeah. So then transitioning, now you're in book publishing. And yeah. your company does a lot of different books, music, and otherwise. Tell us a little bit about that transition, and then I want you to speak to this book that's coming up. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it was um, – it was a matter of necessity. I needed a job. My last company that I worked for was going under. I'm a single dad. I couldn't move to LA or New York. My dream was, is, has been, was to stay in the music business. But uh, I mean, Michael, what you, you know, the entrepreneurial thing for me wasn't a choice. I mean, I admire what, what, you know, you've done and, and uh, uh, in particular, not to suck up or anything, but, you know, I looked at the landscape I, very quickly. I needed a job. And literally the first thing I found online was a job 
doing uh, marketing and publicity for a book publisher. And at the time, they were doing all these big music and pop culture books. And I love all that stuff. And I thought, well, it's just a different type of product. It's entertainment based marketing, no matter what the product is essentially, you know, is essentially the same. It's about creating demand. Right. Yeah. I mean, you just have different tools, but a lot of the tools remain the same. And um, I, you know, I, I like I love what I do. It's it's I used to always say way back when I remember I, I was a marketing major. I used to say, uh, well, if I know making the record business, I'll probably be happy marketing toothpaste. I don't know why I always had toothpaste in my head. That was that was my standard line. And the truth is, it's really interesting to me. I mean, trying to put those I used to love to do models as a kid. Right. So, I mean, putting all these things together to make one thing and see if it works was really has always been attractive to me. So if I put all these things together, how do I get, uh, you know, these people to interview this author? How do I make this happen to, you know, get these people? to notice this book or back when an album i mean that to me was always the the thrill and the cool thing i love doing the best so i mean i kind of went into the book publishing world uh, just i wouldn't say by accident but out of necessity and by choice i mean i'm grateful they hired me and i love what i do and it's still somewhat entertainment based and there's a lot of similarities i mean you have authors with massive social media followings and they're doing events and they're trying to build demand for that book publication date just like you got, you know, we're given teasers and we're trying to get, you know, the author book and all these things. And there's a lot of similarities with with music and albums and singles and all that. So it was it was a uh, fairly, you know, interesting, fairly uh, smooth transition for the most part. A lot of a lot of the things are the same. Uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of the challenges are the same also. So, yeah, well, how does a book get published? Uh, well, people, do people, I mean, do people bring you scripts? Do you go out looking for things? Are there certain types of uh, subjects, be it a band or whatever, that is automatically going to be more interesting than others? And, and I mean, how do you like, let's talk about this kiss book that's coming out that, yeah. you, that you're producing. Where how's, did that, the author... how's that for a plug? There you <laughs> yes. go. And it's a great book, guys. It's all about the non-makeup years. And I'll let you. I'll let Steve tell you all about it. We're going to have the author on uh, coming up in the future. But I guess I want to know where did he come from? How did you get a hold of it? And how did it? How does it get produced? Well, it, it, a lot of ways in the nonfiction world can happen two different ways for a lot of the books we do. So in the case like Take It Off by Greg Prado, uh, you know, he had this idea for the book, and 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 basically. You know, he had this whole idea for the book and started shopping around, came to us, came to, uh, you know, went to the publisher that published his previous books, Jawbone Press out of the UK. He did a book called Shredders. He did a book on Eric Carr many years ago. He did a book on Yacht Rock, which did really well. So there's a bit of a track record there. But in this case, he came and you know, and the publisher Jawbone will will come to us and 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 will ask me and other people, what do you think of this? And it's like, oh my God, this is here's why. <laughs> so this is podcast called Three Sides of the Coin, and the fan base is nuts, and they would love this book. I mean, you know, so it's like you can share that pack that passion a bit, and hopefully you'll prove you'll prove correct. So a lot of times the author will come with the book. But also a publishing company, well, there'll be acquisition editors, almost like A&R people that will have an idea and they'll want to, they'll have an idea to do the ultimate history, ultimate illustrated history of Queen, let's say, right? So they'll contract with uh, Martin Popoff, who you guys probably know has written a bunch yep. of books. Yep. And, and yeah, Martin's encyclopedic and he, you know, he'll 
you know, we would contract with him to make this book and work with him to, to get all the photos, bring in the photos and, and, uh, you know, do the book layout and, and do the actual mat, you know, printing and, and the art direction, all that stuff and do the editing and all that. So, um, you know, in a case like that, very often it, it might start from the company, but then it all ends up being, you know, the, it's going to be the author's vision that's going to work, uh, you know, together with, with the publisher. So it's, it's, it's almost on the one hand, it's like, you know, finding, finding that demo tape and discovering it, uh, accidentally or, or, or going out and saying we need to, or somebody's coming to you with it, or it's like, you know what, there's, there's a niche in the marketplace. We need a book about this in the marketplace. So you actively look for that sort of thing as well. Yeah. Very often you'll, you'll want to do, and it's not just music books. It could be, you know, different, uh, you know, We just put out a book on Quentin Tarantino. Well, when that came across the publisher 16 months ago, 18 months ago, you knew there was going to be another Tarantino movie coming out. Uh, there was previous books on. You can see you know, how those did. So you might have an indication. If we time this just right and we get this book out around Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, then – you know, this makes sense to do. So a lot, so you'll, you know, try to find that, find that, I don't want to say whole, but kind of find that place to be in the marketplace where it might make sense. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes you can just have tunnel vision and there might, it's too niche, let's say. And it's just, you know, what might be, what you might love or what people might love in a meeting just fails to really go in a wide, you know, go to a, appeal to a wide audience, which, that's an old story with the music business too. So, right. Well, so then from the time that you have the, the book is completed and you have, how long does it typically take to lay a book out? Like if you have the book itself, all of the writing, but you have to add photos and you have to basically lay it all out on whatever, um, you know, you use your, whoever's putting it together. How long does it typically take from that time to get it sent to the printer to physically have it available, uh, it could it could take close to depending on the book and how how heavily illustrated it is, and then you're trying to you know get rights maybe some photos. It could take up to a year. I mean, generally, um, if a book is publishing, it's it's it was on one date. Uh, it's it already left the printer or it's been printed or was sent to the printer three to four months before that. So it's there, there is definitely kind of a lead time there. Uh, most of this printing is done overseas. So you have to worry about, you know, that's going to take, take a while to get to, to the, to North America. So, uh, and then before that, there could be about six months worth of, uh, you know, editing, uh, four to six months worth of editing. Uh, sometimes you're going back to the author. You need revisions. You need, you know, there could be changes. Let's say, let's say somebody dies. You have to, you know, you have to try yeah. to make sure the book is as updated as possible up to when you're going to go to the printer. Once you go to the printer, any changes after that are super expensive. I mean, to make to right. make changes on, in, in, you know, make changes so down the road away. So it's typically about a year process. It to could be, yeah. Okay. Have you ever had a situation where you guys are producing a book and had any cease and desists? Um, not the books I've handled. I know um, in the past, I think there had been with like say some kids books or something like something like that. But we're so a really huge company. They they do the internet intellectual property vetting. Like really, I mean, that's if that happens, that's really really rare. Okay, so can you speak to the intellectual property vetting a little bit? I know it's not your area, your marketing, but how do, like, okay, so a book is brought to you. It goes to you, you guys review it, read it, 
and say, yeah, this is something that we want to do. And let's say we need 100 photos or 50 photos, whatever it is. Does it then go to the legal department and they vet out, vet it all out for intellectual property? How does that work? I'm not exactly sure if they go word by word, let's say, but it's interesting because uh, the editors and the people involved in the process are so experienced. I mean, so if something sounds familiar, very often it'll get caught that way. Just like if you hear a song that somewhat sounds familiar and you're like, God, that hook sounds a little bit, where do I know, you know, and then you just do a little research. It's like, I mean, you, if somebody's coming to you with a book, so for instance, when Greg Prado came with, you know, with Take It Off, let's say, I mean, it's real easy to do some research, see if there was any book like this, uh, you know, that was similar like this. And, and if there was very often, and there's not, but very often if there was a book that, you know, might have tread similar ground or was on a similar subject, you can, you know, you could pretty much find out pretty easily, um, you know, it's pretty it's pretty quick to find out about any plagiarism issues and things like that. It doesn't necessarily mean that things might not fall through the cracks, uh, but we got to do our due diligence in particular with any sort of graphics and photos. I mean, you're 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 contracting to buy stuff from the likes of Getty and other photo houses and things like that. I mean, any image that you see online, someone owns somewhere. And it's a right. wild west as far as blogs and websites and everything. But I mean, I've had blogs use a photo from our books. And we would get the C we would get the letter from Getty or some photo house saying, well, you know, you might have used you might have uh, contracted with us to use a photo in the book, but it's not allowed to use anywhere else outside the book. So that's pretty rare when that happens, but it's it's it can happen and it's it's policed pretty quickly. <laughs> so then if let's say a book contains, I don't know, hundred images, whatever the number is. You guys make sure that every single photo has been vetted out with proper um, credentials to prove that that has been vetted so that you can use it in the book. Oh, yeah. I mean, very often, we're, you know, we have to pay for it, right? Um, yeah, in, a lot, in a lot of cases, the authors will um, – you know, the authors that come, you'll see something credible, say from the author's collection. Well, that's easy. I mean, the author took it, right? I mean, we, yes. we'll get proof of that. But, uh, you know, anything else, we just can't pull, you know, or, or get something sent to us that might have ended up somewhere else and just use it because we don't have the rights to use it that way. So you're very careful. So then, yeah. So then part of, of working with a company to produce a book versus being self published is you have that whole team of people helping you lay it out, put it together, get it to, to print and get it, make it a reality versus like a lot of sub self-publishing. Those people are doing all of those things themselves. So it's much, I would think it's much easier to miss some of that stuff. Yeah, it could be. I'm not too familiar with the self-publishing platforms, but I know Amazon has one and, and um, you just couldn't like copy, you know, cut and paste someone's, some book upload it to some self-publishing platform and then, uh, you know, expect to get it published. I'm sure there's some sort of uh, mechanism in there where they could figure out it came from somewhere else. So, um, it, you know, I, the self-publishing thing, I'm not necessarily too familiar with, but there's uh, there's definitely ways to figure that stuff out. So if there are any of you out there listening that have a dream of <laughs> making a kiss book, Steve might be a good guy to talk to once you put your book together or you've written it. 
but that seems to be the route to go is to to talk with different publishing companies at least to find out you know about content and and putting it together and and all of that sort of thing correct yeah yeah i absolutely i know from some authors i've talked to try the self-publishing route it's really hard i mean they're authors they're writers right that's what they do best everything else I mean, and, and everybody's got lives, everything else from, you know, the sales to marketing to uh, to trying to book appearances to just try to figure out how much to, you, you know, you need to print to get out to places. That's it's almost it's really hard for one person to do. It's virtually impossible. I mean, you're you're your own you're your own everything. You're your own company. I mean, it's not to say it can't be done, but uh, it's it's rare when it happens in, in, you know, really in a huge, huge way just with, you know, one person, some family members. So. Well, so then tell us a little bit about this book. What what can fans expect? Because I don't want to put words in there, in your mouth. Yeah, well, um, <laughs> and I know Greg will be on to talk about it yeah. in a couple of weeks. But uh, so Take It Off is actually, it's really the first book to focus just on Kiss's non-makeup error. So, but what's interesting about it is he also starts the book off, he go, it, it goes album by album, virtually year by year, talks about the albums, talks about the tours. And what I love about these sorts of books um, and, uh, you know, there's been a lot of books that uh, Kiss books have followed the same format. It's kind of it's that oral history where there's interviews with a ton of different people who are all Kiss fans or very familiar with the band. So you got, you know, Charlie Benante, uh, uh, Brett Fitz, uh, Eddie Trunk, K.K. Downing, a bunch of other folks, you know, people have been in that Kiss orbit, toured with them, are fans and can say, you know, can talk about the albums. I mean, uh, Julian Gill is in here, a bunch of other folks. It's, uh, I mean, Greg's a huge Kiss fan, so I mean, it's not like he's coming from a place where, uh, you know, I'm just going to write a book about this because it, I think it could sell. I mean, he's a he's a big Kiss fan, knows the material really well, knows the band, and what I really loved about it was it just books like this. I don't know if you guys do the same thing. You read a book like this. I'll read the asylum chapter and I must've listened to asylum about three times that week, <laughs> you know, because, right. because yeah. how they wait, you know, like kiss unmasked. I go back to that uh, all the time because I want to, you know, read about, I'll go back and listen to a record. I'll automatically pick that up. I've read it cover to cover 15 times, but I'll thumb, I'll thumb to that one section, that one chapter on a particular album. And that's, right. what's kind of cool about this because it's always cool to hear what other people are saying or about something or get, get the behind the scenes details on it. So it goes into, to, goes into um, the album, you know, the, each of the albums, the tours. Martin Popoff has a really cool uh, chapter in here as well. So there's some really great contributors. And for me, it just really touched home because, I mean, that was when I first really got into Kiss in a huge way. So when Greg argues that Murder in High Heels should have been a single, I'm like, yeah, God damn it. Thrills in the night. And, you know, I mean, uh, you know, uh, Murder in High Heels. That's why wasn't that a single? I mean, you know, stuff, fun stuff like that. I mean, so it, uh, it just it really covers that area. Great. It just singularly. And just, you know, that's that's its main its main point of the book is what they did all the way up through uh, up through uh uh, Carnival of Souls. Bruce Kulick is in is in the book a lot as well, weighing in on on you know his whole time in the band on dip, in different chapters. So, I mean, am I biased because I work for the company? Uh, sure. If I didn't, would I be running out to buy this damn book because I'm a huge Kiss fan and I have everything else? Hell yeah. I mean, when I first saw this coming down, I. Tommy, we joke about this where, you know, when you, you don't, you don't want to see anything about a favorite album coming out, right? You want right. to hear the album entirely. Well, I had the PDF on this book months ago and I'm like, I'm not reading it. I'm not reading, you know, I had the whole layout. I'm not, yeah. all right, maybe just a little bit. Let me read this little bit about Bruce Keel. I'm not, so, I mean, I had to like 
I just did not want to read until I actually, when you, when yeah. you guys got the copies was when I got the copies and I'm like, okay, now I can I you know really get into it. So I, it's a cool book. Yeah. Well, that's great. And see, there you go, people. So now, you know, and we're going to have the author on in a couple of weeks and the release date on this is when November 19th, but you could uh, pre-order it anywhere now, wherever you, uh, pre-order your books wherever you so, buy books so you'll find it you can you'll find it on uh, everywhere barnes and noble amazon.com any any place you'll see it up there anywhere online so and, well at the risk of being corrected i believe the elder came out on november 19th 1981 well oh, you'll be corrected <laughs> if that's not right <laughs> you know what's interesting about this and i i knew this but i was reminded just how many kiss albums all came out in september yeah, September's fall, always been, right? a, but yeah. but I guess you know, coming from a record, working in the record industry, you kind of know <laughs> that's that's when you release stuff to get it set up and ready for the holiday Christmas. season because absolutely, basically from from Thanksgiving until mid January, it's the the industry's closed. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, I should mention one other thing, and I just flipped through this because this is something I didn't know about. But um, there's a chapter in here uh, with Richie Rano on the birth of the Kiss conventions, which I never knew how all that really started. I mean, I went to the, I went to the uh, went to uh, the Kiss conventions, the official one that was here at the Radisson way back when, and just mm-hmm. was like over that just blew me away. But I no, you know, I had never been to any of the ones on the East Coast or any of the ones that where that first started and all. And I was like. To you know, learn the evolution and find all that out was really, really cool. Yeah, Richie's a good dude too. Yeah. So. Awesome. Cool. Well, Steve, this was a this was a real pleasure. Yeah. Well, thanks. And and and, and, I and, that- and I feel like we could go into it even more. I mean, just the talk of the record label and the record business is yeah, I love is, that. is fascinating. Yeah, we haven't even we haven't even talked about Cheap Trick yet. So no, I, mean, I know. You know. So we definitely we <laughs> definitely <laughs> got got to have you back on to. to, to to, to reveal more about the record industry. <laughs> yeah, and I got How About You the other night. Um, man, I finally saw that on YouTube. Yes. Finally, I can't believe that. I, I know, mean, it was great. Second song in, too, that really surprised me. If there, if if you need more, more, another indication, it's hard. Here's an indication on how much a band still gives a damn, right? When they are, when five or six songs are gonna are gonna be different throughout the set list every week, and some of the songs the freaking bass player never even played on or recorded. So the right. fact they still give a damn, the fact that hey, we're, you know, they got somebody's got to learn that song or go back and review and remember it, and then kill on and kick ass on. I mean, I am constantly surprised and you know have a dumb grin on my face every time I see the set lists, uh, you know, on Cheap Tricks Facebook page. So I mean, oh, you, God, you, yeah. you you had a treat. <laughs> so yeah. So if anyone wants to connect with you, they can find you on Facebook. Yep. Uh, I'm not sure if it's yeah, Steve Roth or Stephen Roth. I'm not even sure, but just look for. He's in Minneapolis. You know what he looks like. And yeah. if you have any questions for him, please just be nice and don't, you know, dictate all of his time. Um, you know, and yeah, you'll have to come on again and we'll do a cheap trick episode. That'd yeah, we'll do whatever you want. I love, I love the show, guys. It's great. And you have a podcast too, so pimp that. Oh, yeah, my fledgling Weapon of Self-Distraction podcast, which is... Uh, I think it's a great name, Weapon of Self-Destruction. You were on it for a minute. I mean, that's because all the cool niches I wanted to do had always been taken. I mean, all the stuff I love to talk about, oh, I could talk about Kiss. Well, shit, there's already a great podcast. But oh, I could talk about Cheap. Oh, there's another good... I mean, 
you know, so it, it tends to go music and pop culture and a couple other directions every now and then, but it's fun to do. Yeah. So weapon, so. weapon of self-destruction, look for that. And I'm sure you can find it on Spreaker and YouTube. Yeah. Weapon of self-destruction, player FM, Podbean, iTunes. Um, yeah. For the most part, most of the folks out there, there's some interviews with comics, uh, some other folks you're in there. So yeah. Happy to have anybody on a guest. Cause I love, talking about almost anything and everything there you go weapon of self-distraction don't miss it <laughs> um, thank you so much for coming on let, let, hey, let, thank let, you let, guys. let's yeah, come up let's so come up with a, a homework question before we wrap um what did you learn about the the record industry that maybe you didn't know yeah yeah and do you have any questions for steve he'll watch the YouTube and, and keep an eye on the links. Do you have any questions about books or working in the book industry or working in the, um, you know, music industry and, and all that? Cause there's a lot of things we didn't cover. And there's probably a lot of things I don't know. So I won't be afraid to admit that. So <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. None of us have all the answers. Well, some, uh, some, some people of, think they do. Yeah. <laughs> there's always a couple out there. Um, all right. So everybody, you know where to go to leave your homework. Facebook.com slash three sides of the coin. You head over to three sides of the coin.com, YouTube, Spreaker, Spotify, Instagram, Twitter. We're everywhere. You can leave comments and questions. And of course, it's greatly appreciated if you head over to iTunes, leave us a review and a rating. And if you're watching this on YouTube, hit that little subscribe button so you never miss a new show. Right. And uh, that's it. I think we've got a guest next week, and I think Mark will be back. He did chime in right at the end here saying he's sorry he missed it, but are we still recording? Because, God, he'd be hungry by now. <laughs> there you hey, go. It's Taco Tuesday. It's Taco Tuesday. Yes. And he's seen Deep Purple. So. so he's in heaven. He's in heaven. Tacos, Deep Purple. Yeah. So that's it, everybody. Three sides of the coin. We'll see you next week. So you love the show. Go to iTunes.threesidesofthecoin.com and leave your review and rating of Three Sides of the Coin. Thanks. Download your free free copy of the KISS School of Marketing. 11 Lessons I Learned Working with KISS. The number one downloaded business book on Noise Trade. Go to books.noisetrade.com slash Michael Brandvold. You're listening to Three Sides of the Coin. So you love the show. Go to iTunes.threesidesofthecoin.com and leave your review and rating of Three Sides of the Coin. Thanks.